0: Swedish people just don't do that. You know, it is a privilege to be here. Um, I was thinking um, how fun it was to be able to uh, one time speak at my dad's church to the people he loved. And uh, to be able to speak at my older brother's church. And by the way, I'm taller, not bigger. (laughs) Just for the record. But to be able to speak at... uh, my brother's church, where you know that the same thing can be said. I, I he's a man that loves God and he loves you people, and it's a rare commodity I think today to find people who want to shepherd others. Um, and you know, it's 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 interesting. My my degrees are different. My degrees are in education, and I didn't get the theology degrees. I happen to teach theology, but I guess I guess. We 're in the north woods, so there 's nobody with the right degree, so I get to do that but what 's interesting is I travel my mind 's always going to what can we do to be different? What do we need to do as a nation to change the direction of things now i, I as i 'm talking to college kids all over i 'm finding that they're they feel confused so they 're acting confused they 're growing up in a society where they, they, you know gender 's been questioned where marriage has been questioned, where the church has been questioned, where authority has been questioned. Actually, if you believe something, just the fact that you believe it constitutes that it's true. See, they, they're growing up at a time like that. And, and they realize, I mean, just the political ads I've seen up by us up north, you know, you get one up and they, they say this, and the next one comes and says exactly the opposite of what this one just said. They both can't be right. I have no idea who is, by the way. But I know they both can't be right because they just said something that was opposite. And we have kids watching that, hearing it, and being confused. Because they're sitting listening to things that are lies, and nobody's actually pointing out to them that these are lies. They're just listening to them going, oh, that's how it is. So we have a whole generation now that has been growing up in an atmosphere where they cannot understand what truth is, where, where lies have been prevalent, but they don't even know how to expose them. I, I did some, uh, some research that was not pleasant, actually, and it was in one way. There's two guys I've been reading about. One is Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was the guy who founded Voice of the Martyrs, and he was 14 years in prison, 14 years, where he got beat on regularly. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, uh, they, they've just come out with a movie recently, and, and uh, Linda and I, Linda's my wife, we were watching a little bit. We turned it off after a while because the beatings that they were showing were so real. And for 14 years, he spent four years in isol- isolation. Four years. Where the only time he heard somebody was to take him out of his cell to beat him. And this was under Hitler and the Nazis and under the communists. He happened to be on the wrong side of things in a way. He was a Jewish Protestant pastor. So under, in Germany, that was a really bad thing. And they loved beating on him. So I went and I read everything this man could write, and I, I would suggest if you get a chance to read anything Richard Wurmbrand, W-U-R-M-B-R-A-N-D, writes, I would do it. He had 14 years of isolation to think about everything he said, and, and it's just packed with wisdom. The other guy I studied was Adolf Hitler, who also went to jail and wrote Mein Kampf. You have Wurmbrand writing books on faith and God and and love and church and shepherding, and you've got Hitler writing Mein Kampf, how to beat everybody up and take power. It's a contrast that is so amazing in how life played out for each of them. One of the common elements, though, one of the things that Hitler worked at more than anything else was making sure that confusion reigned. And I look at our culture and reading his stuff and realizing that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to make sure confusion reigned because then he could be the savior for society. And, and actually, let me read some things to you. Um, Hitler, one of the things he worked at was keeping his world in chaos until he could get into control of his world. Germany was actually getting better when he wanted to start taking power, and he had all these meetings to try and keep it apparently bad. Now, again, if you just play in your mind the politics of our nation right now, whoever's running is telling you how bad it is on the other side. It's, it's something politicians have done forever. They realize if everything's going really well, if anything's going really well, then those who are in power are going to stay in power. So you've got to take advantage of bad times. And Hitler understood that. Let me give, tell you the advice he had. He had this, this advisor that would talk to him. And I want to read it directly because um, it's kind of an interesting little dialogue he had with him. He was trying to learn how to grab power and his, his advisor said to him, another powerful tool you could use is affirmation. He resumes. Affirmation, pure and simple, kept free of all reasoning and proof, is one of the surest means of making an idea enter the mind of a crowd. But affirmation has no power without repetition which is the second tool you must use. Hitler nodded. Affirmation must. Crowds are stupid, Herr Hitler. Men joining a crowd do not possess great intelligence. They need unity with one another to feel worthy. Hitler said, Should I let out the entire truth of my intentions and hope to be perceived as a great visionary, deserving their money and backing? Would I risk everything and come across as inconsequential fanatic? No, I must not unmask the entire truth. If I want to cultivate their support, I must appear as one of them, reasonable, moderate, respectable. In short, I must become a pen wizard. As I am a wizard of the spoken word, I must tell them what they want to hear. Interesting. The truth of the matter is that that... um, Situation he was in was getting better and better and now he was on a campaign to make sure it stayed bad And in the process getting people to look at what they could have He was talking about the good economy that was coming up and he said if I were to accept that that would be my end If germany was getting better then I would have no way to break into it Hitler said this I suddenly remembered this guy's words affirmation pure and simple kept free of all reasoning and proof is one of the surest means of making an idea enter the mind of crowds the more concise the affirmation is the more destitute of every appearance of proof and demonstration the more weight it carries when you read that it's got to drive you nuts here's a man looking at the crowd, and i want to control the crowd but i want to do it with lies and deception and anything else i can get my hands on i do not want them knowing the truth the end result is that millions of people died. What's amazing is, he was even saying, what you have to do is you have to look at other people and you have to affirm them, but they have to be false affirmation. In fact, affirmation has to be the most important thing you do in life. You have to affirm people, no matter what they believe, you have to affirm them. That's the most important thing you do. So if somebody comes to you and says, I think this, I feel this, go, well, that's good, that's right, that's great. You should feel that way. See, it's, you have to affirm them, but you don't put truth next to it at all. If you look at our culture right now, we're, we're in the middle of that constant affirmation with nothing to affirm. I, I remember when I was in high school and I, uh, my last year of high school, or my junior year of high school, I was uh, trying to play football and I was swimming and the football coach told me, you can't swim, you're on the swim team, he said you couldn't swim because uh, those are opposite. You, you, you need to play football, concentrate on one sport and do that. And uh, I went and talked to my swimming coach about it. And my swimming coach had become a good friend through the years. And as we talked about it, he, uh, he said, Dave, can I tell you the truth? Of course. You're not going to be a professional athlete at anything. <laughs> if I were you, I would do all the sports. Enjoy them. Get to know them. Make it a broader part of your life. That's my opinion. Instead of being angry with him, I was relieved. I actually quit football that year. And I swam because of his honesty. Now, later in life, I know he's right. The people I know that went to be professional athletes, they're freaky good. I mean, they're freaky good at everything. They go to, like, Division I schools, and they play basketball, baseball, and football, and they can go play professional at any of them. They're just freaky good. I was never freaky good. I got cut from a no-cut baseball team. (laughs) And somebody needs to be able to tell you when you're that bad that, hey, you're not really good at baseball. They don't need to keep affirming you and saying... Boy, you're going to be the next Babe Ruth as they're winking to somebody. See, that doesn't help to lie to people. It doesn't help to tell them something that's not true, just so you can make them feel good about it. And our nation is stuck in that. The whole time I speak this morning, I want you to vision the, the body principle. The body principle is so important in the Bible. Believers are to be a part of a body. We're a part of a body. That's what God says. There's elbows, there's wrists, There's knees. You know what's really cool? As I'm talking to you right now, my hands, my mouth, my eyes, everything's going with my words. All the body parts are going with my words. Now it's freaky because I'm thinking about doing something. But, but part of communication is not just texting or whatever else. It's seeing people. It's seeing their eyes. It's seeing their emotions. It's seeing and feeling what they're saying. See, part of communication has always been with the whole body. So while I'm talking, I am not thinking literally my hand should do this. I'm not thinking that. It's like my brain sent signals and said, you're saying this, I'll go boom. I don't even know how fast it does that. You know, I mean, it's like, wow, I wow. You know, the only thing I really want for my body is to listen to the brain. That's all I want. When it listens to the brain, everything works. Everything works. My, my elbow works fine the way it's supposed to if it's listening to the brain. It does what it's supposed to. It's not distracting. I'm not speaking. My elbow's not going like this while I'm speaking. And when I'm done, you're not going, hey, nice elbow. Did you see that elbow where you spoke? It's really important that I have an elbow, but it needs to fall in line with where it belongs. When the elbow starts wanting to be a wrist or a knee or an ankle, we got problems. When it wants attention, when it's supposed to be under the sweater and not be seen, we got problems. Affirmation is really a part and what Satan does, and Hitler is very much like Satan if you read anything about him. What Satan does is he takes the good part of what God has taught, the truth, and he twists it. So he'll take affirmation, which is a really good thing to do with young people, with everybody, to affirm people where they're at. But then he'll add it to the idea of lie about it and affirm. Because affirmation is so important. What's interesting, oh, wait, i got to do something here. Sorry, I mean, I'm getting used to something. I want to read something from Wormbrand for you. He said this Thinking our problems are new or unique makes it obvious, answer. Uh, makes the obvious answers to our problems escape our notice. There cannot be new solutions because there are not any new problems. As wormbrand was talking about looking at nations and looking at, at the way Hitler operated, looking at how the communists operated, obviously he saw a boatload of problems. But he was saying, really, in life, there aren't any new problems. There really aren't. If you trace everything back, it gets real simple. The problem in our life is actually sin. Every one of us has been affected by sin. Every human being that have walked the planet is sinful, and that sin separates them from God, and it separates them from one another. That's the problem. That hasn't changed in all of history. It may play out different in history, but it hasn't changed. And since the problem hasn't changed, the solution hasn't changed. We keep looking for a new solution, but there are none, because there are no new problems. You know, they play out, and they're different, but they're old problems. And we have to understand that they are old problems. He says this. For centuries, there have been a war against poverty, but there's more poverty in the world than ever before. For centuries, men have talked of disarmament or abolition of war. Yet in Vietnam alone, more bombs have been dropped than were used against Germany in the whole World War II. Again, this is dated, obviously. We try to fill the gap between generations. In the Museum of Antiquity in Constantinople, there's an oldest piece of writing known to man. It bears the following inscription. Alas, times are not what they used to be. Children no longer obey their parents, and everybody's writing a book about it. Things really haven't changed. When you look at our nation and you look at what's going on, there's a power struggle. Satan... It is trying to captivate the minds of people no matter how he can do it, and God is loving us and wanting us to come to him and submit to him. And that's been going on since the beginning of time. Put whatever government you want with it, put whatever country you want with it, the problem's the same. What we have to do is start recognizing what we need to do about it and begin to change the way that we act. This is the statement that got me going for this, uh, what I want to share in scripture with you in a moment. Wormbrand said this, at the root of all social and racial unrest, this is a very powerful statement if he's right. He says, at the root of all social and racial unrest is the trespassing against the 10th commandment you shall not covet. Why do you need more than you have? Interesting. Guy sits in prison 14 years, goes through the Nazis and the communists, comes out, was a shepherding pastor before he went in was when, when he left. Started Voice of the Martyrs. You can go get their stuff, and I suggest you do. Because there's people all over the world suffering because they love Jesus. And what's interesting is that he says something like this. After all of my thought and all of my observations, I tie them all back to coveting. I thought, wow, that's interesting. And then I began to think about it a little bit. I thought, well, yeah, you know, it was Satan who coveted God's power and authority, and that's what he wanted for himself. In my elbow, it's coveting what my wrist does. It'll make me look stupid. We begin to covet things we don't have in people. We begin to look around us. And in our culture, with with all of the media that we have and all the chance we have to look at what everybody else is doing and thinking and saying, the idea of us not measuring up, the idea of somebody else having more than us, Pretty soon we're people that are on a mission to make sure that we're not left out. Let me ask you, is my elbow left out because it's an elbow? Where is the teaching that we have to learn that we are, we are not only content but excited about the place God put us in in this life? When, those, when we understand God is our Father who put us right where we belong, and we understand that he loves us. We understand how we're supposed to function. There's a tremendous freedom there. You're not always looking at what somebody else has, what other people are saying, what other people are doing. You're looking at what God has for you and you're excited about it. Let me read Exodus 20, 17. We're told you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That makes sense. As I travel and speak to people, I often will ask, especially groups of men, I say, are you guys greedy? Do you struggle with greed? No, no. Really depends on how you describe it, I guess, how you define it. But I've yet to meet people who struggle with greed, really. Although I bet you we all struggle with greed. You to be able to do, are you a coveter? Oh, no, no. Our whole culture is based on coveting. I remember once uh, uh, after 9-11 and George Bush got up and he was our president, for those of you that didn't remember that. Um, he got up and he basically said, oh, you people, you got to go out and, and go spend some money doing something you don't need to do. There's another article at the same time talking about how strange the Chinese were because they they actually wait till they can afford something to buy it. See, the culture. Advertisements on TV, all that free stuff you get over, if, if you do get free, we still have an antenna, so we still get it free, the channels that we do get. But they're not free because they're always telling me what I don't have. They're always telling me, what I don't have, and I can't be happy without having what I don't have. Our whole culture, our whole economy is based on covetous behavior. But we're told not to covet. Oh, it's easy. We could look. This guy's house is better than mine. I'll never be happy. This guy's marriage is better. I wish I had that guy's marriage. Instead of focusing on what we can do, we're focusing on what others have and what they're doing. Proverbs 23, 48 says this, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. By the way, when it's talking about this toiling, it it really is, don't focus on just taking care of yourself and and with the idea of growing and making sure you're comfortable, and that's always a cultural normative. If you go to Africa, what's being comfortable in, in Kenya today and what's being comfortable in Uganda is different than being comfortable here in the United States. So, so again, it, it's not a new problem. You can focus on these things. It, 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 we're told, don't acquire wealth. Don't, it's not talking about not acquiring, not getting it. It's talking about focusing on it, because you're just wanting to make sure you're ahead of the Joneses. Are there any Joneses here? I'm sorry. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. This is just telling the way it is. When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprout wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Don't eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Don't desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Looking at what others do, and not, you can't even like having people over. You can't even enjoy helping people because you're always calculating. Uh, I, I, I live in the North Woods, and one of my favorite things to do is collect wild blackberries. And I have wild blackberries, and I have a freezer full of them. And honestly, I struggle with this. If you come over and you're eating wild blackberries with me, I'm counting them. <laughs> Those are my berries. And you're eating them. And I'm acting on the outside like I'm really happy to share them with you. My oldest daughter was at the house, and she had the nerve to look in my freezer and see how many berries I had. And then we were talking about sharing berries with her, and she told my wife, Yeah, he's got a lot of berries in there. He can share them. You know how easy it is to start letting stuff rule our lives? I have it, you don't have it, these are mine. Rather than looking at you and thinking, what can I do to give you something and make your life better and make your life what it should be? I'm thinking, I need to give you the appearance that I'm going to do that, but I really don't give a rip, don't touch my berries. Because they're mine. Can I suggest that when I do that, I'm not a happy person? That the fruit of that is bitterness and anger, and you don't even, you don't, you're not happy at all. Don't eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Pfft, that's the advice. Don't desire his delicacy, for he like one is inwardly calculating. Eat, drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. I have a friend who flies. He's a, he's a private pilot, and he flies uh, for some very wealthy people all over. He, a lot of his flights, he takes people to um, the Mideast for lunch. To meet their clients and back. I said, That is an expensive lunch. He goes, You don't know the half of it. He said, When I was a young man, I was sitting with him just a while ago talking to him about it. He was in my Sunday school class and he was just a kid. And, um, and he, he was talking about, When I was a young man, boy, I look forward to that. I thought one day, man, I'll fly all over the world and I'll, I'll eat all these fancy restaurants and I'll do all this stuff really rich guys do. And he kept looking at it and saying, Man, when I get there, when I get there. Well, he's been there for a while. And I asked him, I said, So what do you what do you think about when you travel right now? What what really what do you look forward to? And he looked at me and his eyes swelled up below with tears. He said, Going home. He said, Dave, I get a seventy five dollar allowance for you know breakfast and a seventy five for lunch, seventy five for supper when I'm out. I get the fanciest hotels, I get He says, when I sit there and I'm eating at a restaurant, I often am daydreaming about being at home with a peanut butter sandwich with my kids. He said, so this life didn't deliver, huh? No. It's not that you can't do that and have the right attitude. It says, that life didn't deliver. The idea of arriving somewhere and thinking, oh, these people have it, those people have it, those people have it, those people have it. I need to be like those people. They got it. Well, what about being like the people that God made you to be? What about being the part of the body that you're supposed to be and function in that way and be good with it? Where's the excitement for being the way you're supposed to be? There should be excitement that there's a lot of different parts of the body, wrists and all that stuff, because it all works together. It all works together really great when it works together great, it's like, wow, that's really cool. You don't really think that because it's supposed to work together great. Coveting is really a never-ending appetite. Behold, his soul's puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Coveters don't have faith. They think something else besides God will take care of them. Instead of looking for somewhere else and what someone else has in their situation. You know, for years running a, 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 a nonprofit ministry, always, you know, when I first started, I looked at other ministries and thought, oh, man, if we had what they had, if we had what they had. You know, we didn't have what they had. We weren't their part. We weren't, we weren't them. We were us. I look back now, and, and, and I've had 51 summers there. And I look back now and I look at what God has done and I go, God, this is so incredible what you have done here, here. Now, I'm not saying what he has done other places isn't incredible, but I know what he's done here. 51 years and the bills are paid, 51 years. This year, for the first time in in all the years, we are completely out of debt. And I looked at it and I said, God, how do we do that? We charge people that come to, to our ministry about 25% less than it actually cost us. So in the summer, if a child comes up, it's a $400 fee for the, the week, about that. We lose $100 on it. So we have to find $100 for every camper that comes up to supplement what's going on. That's not a good business plan, by the way. And if somebody can't afford it, we tell them to come anyway. Why? Because the Bible makes it clear, that's all, that our God, our Father makes it clear. You don't treat the rich different than the poor. You can't do that. Just because they have money, you don't treat them differently. So if somebody came and gave us $5 billion, we don't treat them differently than the kid who comes and has nothing. You don't do that because that's sinful because all of a sudden what you're doing is looking at the outside. It's amazing to me that every year our bills have been paid and that we're still operating, that's all. And there are so many business people through the years who have come through and said this is amazing. The only thing I see here is that God must have provided for you. And I go, you're right. If you know me at all, I I don't even know what accountants do, and they get all these columns that don't even matter. All you accountants, sorry. But you know there's people like me out there that don't know how to read those things. But we have a part of the body of Christ that does those columns and does all that, and I trust them, and they do that, and I cheer them on. I go, man, this is great. You're doing all that, and Just tell me what I need to do. Can I buy this or can't I? What's interesting here is there's a vision in Habakkuk of a national calamity coming. The the impending invasion of the Chaldeans. The righteous shall live by faith. I know what's going on out there. I know the world that you're looking at is crazy. I know there's a lot of really, really strange things going on. There's a lot of dangers, a lot of things that aren't right. I know that. I'm your father. Quit looking at that. Look at me. Quit looking at that. Look at me. It's interesting. The idea of walking by faith. Acknowledging the fact that I am a special creation of God, that he made me the way that I am I can go anywhere in the world and do any job in the world, and as I listen to him, as I focus on him, he is faithful to take me through that in a successful way. If you read Wormbrand, you see, it took him 14 years in prison to learn what he learned. He's a shining light for our kingdom. A guy who knows God and loves God, he is with God right now. He's no longer on this planet. I was told he once came to our area up in the Northwoods, and and they said he, he, he couldn't even wear shoes. His feet had been broken so many times that they had to wear slippers even in the winter when he was up there because his feet were so deformed. But when you saw the man, you saw a joyful, excited man who loved God and loved the opportunities. He used to just be able to talk to the guards in the prison. They used to beat on him. There was one guard in particular, a German guard, would come and get him when he was in solitary confinement, and he'd take him and they'd beat on him. and and, 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 And Richard said, this guy had such a beautiful operatic voice. Now, Richard and I had different tastes. I'm not sure operatic and me go together, but he enjoyed this operatic voice that this guy had. And he thought, this guy beat him, and as he was beating him, he was listening to him sing. When he got back to his cell and thrown on the floor, he just said, oh God, thank you for that beautiful voice. In the midst of all this misery and agony, you provided me a moment of listening to this beautiful song. And I thought, God, help me get there in my life. Where I'm looking to God, here's the truth of the matter, God can remove worm brand from that situation right now if he wanted to he could do that or he can sustain him or he could take him home that would remove him he knew that see when you know that about god you quit being so restless you quit thinking there's another life out there i got to grab i got to grab this for me and that for me and i'm not going to be okay until i grab this for me or that for me no that's not how it works you can relax with what you have you can relax with who you are You can enjoy the fact that God is your father and relax. One of the fun things through the years up in our ministry there is that I've been able to be who I am. And really, I I work at our staff trying to get them to, to be who they are and enjoy who they are and do their job without my interference, especially the finance guys. They like the fact that I cheer them on and affirm them in their jobs. Even though I don't know what their job actually is. Because my mind is so close to that kind of thing. The opposite of coveting isn't uh, ignorance. It's, it's not just not knowing. So if I don't know, then I won't covet. That's, that's not it. The opposite of coveting isn't a lack of concern. It's not that you're going to go, I really don't care what anyone else is doing. That's not an opposite of coveting. An opposite of coveting isn't a fatalistic thought process where you say, well, this is just, you know, I'm I'm the one God wanted to pick on. If you look in the book of Job, I think that eventually God corrected Job on that fatalistic thought process. Because I thought he was doing a great job saying, I'm okay, God. You can do what you want. I I guess you just chose me out of the universe to pick on. Not really how it's written, I understand. And eventually God gave him three chapters of correcting him like, I don't do anything random, Job. It's not like I just picked on you. Eventually Job repented. See, I mean, eventually he said, oh, yeah, I, I spoke of things I really didn't understand. Right? That was fine. Everything was fine after that. See, God isn't random. So fatalistic thought doesn't work. It's not like, you know, as I speak to you, I'm a guy that that suffers from a disease called narcolepsy. So if I fall asleep here, just laugh. (laughs) I'll be fine. Do you know what I know for sure? That my Heavenly Father can take that disease away from me right now. But he doesn't. I'm okay with that. He knows what he's doing. I actually think now that I've had it for quite a long time, that it's a a gift. If you don't understand narcolepsy, I'm not going to explain it to you. It's just a really weird gift. I know this, that I have to take medicine that other people have to buy in the black market. And I get to take it with a prescription. It makes my mind extremely sharp. I love it. I can sit, and I take that, those pills, and my mind just starts working like, it, like you would not believe. It's the number one medication abused by medical students today. It's the number one prescription abused by, uh, by uh, Silicon Valley presidents and of companies. They are now starting to prescribe it to people who work on Wall Street who are working long hours and overtired, so they can keep their mind sharp. I get a prescription for it. Now, I know you're saying, well, no, you know what? God made me who I am. I love to sit and read and think. I need a mind to do that that's sharp, that can go around. I get to speak all over the Midwest to people. I get to do a lot of radio programs. I just love doing that. But you have to have a mind that's working. And I think, oh, God, this is fun. You can take the narcolepsy from me, but can I keep the pills? The opposite of coveting is really contentment. That's what it is. It's being content in life. Because of the Heavenly Father, because of who you know and because of the love God has for you and the way he's demonstrated that love to you, the circumstances of life. Now, the circumstances of your life, they could be really rough, and they could be rough for one of two reasons. One reason is you're living apart from God, you're sinning, and then you're wondering why you're so miserable. Well, you're miserable because you're living apart from God and you're sinning. I mean, it's like this. If you went out over here and you beat your head on a rock and then you complained of a headache, we'd all laugh at you. And if while you were beating your head on a rock, you prayed and you said, God, would you please, please stop my headache, I think he would laugh at you. I think he'd say, quit beating your head on a rock. I made it so when you beat your head on a rock, it hurts. That's why it hurts. Some of us in our lives, we've been ignoring God. We have not been intimate with him. We spend no time with him. We know more about sports. We know more about politics. We know more about the world around us. We are focusing, coveting in a way, focusing on everything else that's going on. We don't know God. We wonder why we're miserable. I just told you why you're miserable. You really have to change that. And it's not going to change accidentally. It's not going to change if you just say, I need to change that and go home and do the same stuff you've always done. See, when we start focusing on others and circumstances, outside stuff, we get in trouble. I love to ask men, when I meet with men who do different men's things, I, I love to just ask them, hey, are you enjoying God? The first time I asked them, what does that mean? It means what I just said. Are you enjoying him, just time with him? Do you just enjoy sitting with him and do you enjoy him? we getting into some freaky spiritualism stuff here? No, see, the thing with God is a relationship thing. That's what it is. And in relationships, you have to be intentional about your time and you have to say, I'm going to spend time and I'm going to enjoy God. I'm going to spend time. You know, you need to spend time with your family, your family. Linda and I, uh, every day that we're home, we we pick a time where we go for a three-mile walk. We, We found years ago that at home, I'm busy. She's busy. We, you know, I don't do as well sitting around a table staring at her, staring at me, having a great conversation. It, it just doesn't work as well. Let's walk and talk. Let's, so we're intentional about it. Why? Because that's the relational side. I mentor several of our students at the Nicolet Bible Institute. I mentor a student and meet with a bunch more and I know whenever they say, hey, uh, we have to get together, I stop and say, we're not getting together until we set a time. What? No, really. Nice intention. But we're not getting together until you say, this time, here, what? We have to do that. Some of us are doing that with God. Yeah, I'll get with God whenever. No, you've got to be intentional about it. This is a relationship you can't afford not to have. You can't afford not to have intimacy with God. Otherwise, you're going to start looking around and coveting other things and situations and people, and you're, you're going to be thinking the solution is out there, and you'll be sus- suspect to a guy like Hitler someday coming in and giving you a bunch of propaganda that you're going to believe. See, these guys that didn't believe Hitler, they had God in their heart and the Holy Spirit saying, don't listen. This guy's bad. You had guys like Bonhoeffer, Wormbrand, Go read those guys. They actually knew something. They kept their eyes where they belonged. Contentment. That's how you, if you're running around life right now and you're not content, it is really for one of those two reasons. It's either because you're beating your head on a rock and you're not supposed to be content beating your head on a rock, so you need to straighten that out. And if you can't figure that out, I encourage you, go spend some time with Rick and, and sit there and talk about it. That's why you have shepherds, you know. That's what you do. You go talk to them, say, hey, this isn't working. So, so it's either that. Or, or you're, you're actually just looking at other people in situations and thinking, if it changes, I'll be, I'll be better then. And you know what's going to happen? It'll change, and you won't be better then. I know there's a Josh up here and he's an Apple guy, but I'm telling you, it's really hard being a guy who loves Apple stuff. You know what I'm saying? They keep changing it. And I'm already dissatisfied with what I have. And I'm trying to be Joyful. But I'm looking at what I'm missing out on. <laughs> what a struggle. Contentment is so wonderful. To be able to enjoy the people around you, to be able to enjoy God the way they are, the way they were created, at their elbows, at their knees, at their ankles, at their toes. To be able to do that. Ecclesiastes also describes futility of man who is discontent with what he has. There's a certain man without dependence having either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked. And for who am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity and grievous task. We, we start working with no purpose other than to just get ahead and compare ourselves to others. We look at work, at what other people are making. We just don't understand that we go, serve God, work hard, go home, whatever. You say, well, I deserve, I deserve Go work hard. You know, it, it's, when I'm talking to young people about what they're going to do in life, often I'm saying, you know what, pick something in life. Think, tell me what you would do for nothing in life. And, and, and if it's sitting on an island in Tahiti, it's wrong. Pick something. Like, what I do for a living, I teach like this, and, I go to, and, I, and I'm at Silver Birch Ranch. I can't believe I actually could live there and do that. I, I've not, I haven't been to work in 35 years. See, God put in my heart to do that. He made me a certain way, he bent me a certain way. I actually love being just alone and staring out at the woods and reading and thinking. I live in the woods at the edge of a million acre national forest. I don't see the whole million acres. But I get to look out my window and read and study and think. So God flipped a little switch in my head many years ago. that said, I got you made a certain way. It's not going to be a guy who wants to live in a high-rise downtown Chicago and you're not going to find fulfillment there. Not that that can't happen, I'm just saying that's not me. You know, it's interesting, in Ecclesiastes, one of the phrases that really grabbed me in the last couple of years, he talks about chasing the wind, chasing the wind. And so much of our life is that. If you picture with me chasing the wind, if you chase the wind right now and you actually caught it, Let's say I was chasing the wind and I caught it. What do I have? Nothing. That's what envy does. We look at situations. We chase them. We look at this. We look at this. God's not a part. We're looking. We're looking. And then all of a sudden we catch them and we look at it and go, ah, nothing. Go ahead. Ask a few of the older people like my brother. <laughs> ask... Some older people, if they haven't learned that lesson in life, that you can chase wind like that and catch it and get nothing. Coveting is a devious desire that's complex and complicated, which is often well-concealed. I tell you, one of the things I'm going to ask you to do is sometime in the next 48 hours just sit with God and ask him, are there things in my life that are driving me that are covetous? And not from you. Why? Because you're not going to want to do that. Because our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We're people who love lying to ourselves. We like not having an absolute standard. I've told so many, if I lie to you, I I, I could be a guilt ridden person. If I lie to you, I would feel really badly about it for a while. In fact, I'd want to come back and talk. I don't want to lie to you, but I can lie to myself all day long. Like, I could tell myself things all day long that aren't true and be okay with it. i got to stop that. What you need to do is ask God, because this is so prevalent in man, just prevalent in our hearts, that we need to ask him, show me where I'm doing this, confess it, and see what happens next. Coveting hinders some things. It hinders generosity. If you're a coveter, you're not generous. Why? Because you're always looking at what you're getting out of it and how it's going to change your personal status. Generous people, they love God, and they love people. And when they get to participate with them, they do automatically. They just do, and they love doing it. They'll give you their berries. <laughs> they'll share them with you. And they'll be happy to do it. See, I've got to grow there. That's just the way life is. You've got to recognize even the silliest things in life that start to get into your life that you normalize because that's what we do. We normalize it. No. We need to be generous people. And if you're not generous, deep down in your heart, if you're not giving, if you're not looking out for others, because there's only two things we do. We love God, we love each other. If we love each other, we're looking, how do we help this person be the person they should be? It doesn't mean you blindly give or anything, but you're, you're generous. It hinders loving people, obviously because you're loving yourself so much and you're so big that other people are just, you use them. Let me warn you. We have a tendency to love what we should use and use what we should love. Let me say it again. We have a tendency to love what we should use and use what we should love. You use a lawnmower, you don't love it. You use money, you don't love it. You love people, you love God, you don't use them. You don't come to God and start making demands and using him. You love him. So you don't ask yourself, this covenant has it got so far in my life? Has it gone so far? that I have begun to even acceptably somehow love things that I should use and use things that I should love. One of the big breakthroughs in my berry escapade ex- was I have a berry patch that is unbelievable and up north, if you have a, a berry patch in the woods, you don't tell anybody about it because it's your berry patch. So a couple of years ago, I decided this berry thing's out of control. And I went to the staff, different staff members, said, can I show you where this is? Can I show you where this is? This year, Brad, our our camp director, came up to me and said, man, I can't believe you showed me that spot. Do you know, my wife and I, how many gallons of berries we got out of there? And my first response was... (laughs) And then I said, oh, thank you, God, for working on my heart with these stupid berries. Right? I'm sure there's some silly things in your life that God will use to show you exactly what I'm talking about. Not, it does, Sometimes it's not the huge things that trip you up. Like if you came in here and said, I want you to murder this person, I'd probably say no. That's a huge thing. But my berries, that's something getting in my realm. And God says, I know. So that's what I got to use to teach you. And every year, the funny thing is, every year they grow back. And he teaches me again with him, and he teaches me again with him, and he teaches me again. I'd love to tell you that, man, it's not a problem now. But I, you, part of it is I show everybody the patch now. It's so big. Part of it is because it's so big, we can't pick it out anyway. Use the things in your life to learn. God's message, it, it hinders God's message of how important we are, the way we are. I love being, as you know, Rick's my older brother. There's only two of us. I love being a younger brother. I don't want to be an older brother. He'll tell you, I, I like to come in. I'm a younger brother. I'll act like, you know, my mom was sick. Decision needed to be made. I'd walk out and say, you're the older brother. You, you decide what we need to do. He was a really good athlete. I don't know if he's ever told you stories about that, but he was a natural athlete. I got cut from a no-cut baseball team. I had to learn to enjoy who I was who God made me to be. I'm not him. I'm quieter. I'm not him. I Anyone's quieter, I understand. <laughs> God made us the way we are, and some of us need to do a career, you know, over at Portillo's or Walmart, and some of us need to be in Fortune 500 companies, and some of us need to be designers and some of us need to be engineers and some of us need to be teachers and some of us need to be whatever and God will use us in those fields to show who he is and we show up for work every day and we work hard and we show the world who God is because that's our role and we go home satisfied because of our role and we're not always looking at what other people have we're looking at what God put us on this planet to do and we're, we're enjoying what he has us do and we're enjoying that body part When all is finished, we realize that elbow function just great. I'll hurry here. I only got a couple more slides, really. Real contentment has fruit, and, and that's what you need to look at. If I have the fruit of really enjoying God, it's going to be there. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. See, all that stuff that comes from coveting, we've killed it. It doesn't destroy us anymore. And what happens is we start enjoying walking with God, what he's given us, the gifts he's given us, the abilities he's given us. We enjoy that. The family he's given us, we enjoy them. Sometimes we have to do things to learn how to. My daughter recently got married, and her husband is an avid hunter. I'm 62. I grew up in Chicago. I never hunted. I'm hunting this year. I haven't even seen a deer yet, but I'm hunting. Why? Because I need to readjust my life. I need to understand that, that, that things need to be different than they used to be in order to relate, in order to do things. And, and what happens is there's fruit of love. There's fruit of it. Loving God, there's fruit. Loving people, there's fruit. So I get together with my son-in-law now, and we talk, and we're, we're excited about the hunting or whatever it might take place, or, or he's excited about the fact that I know nothing and can make fun of me on it or something, or he doesn't really do that. But it's one of those things where now I have a place to relate. There's fruit of love, and it's good. There's fruit of loving God. There's fruit of loving one another. And if you're missing that fruit, if it's not there, you're not going to fix it by coveting. You're actually going to fix it by loving instead of coveting. We seem to think that there's a good coveting and a bad coveting. I don't know. You can play with that in your head. Yeah, you could want things that are really good. I'm not sure that's coveting to desire what's good what's right. But, but the idea really is whatever you covet most is, is what you're valuing. So if you really want to use the covet, for, in the example, I really want to be close to God. If that's what you're coveting or desiring, it's a different word. But now you're going to do things so that you're with Him. Let me end with this. Isaiah 30, 15 says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel In returning and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you are unwilling. I don't know what's going to happen in the elections in this country, and I don't know what direction sometimes Washington is going or anything else. But I do know that the Bible tells us that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water, he moves it wherever he wishes. I'm not depending on Washington, D.C. I'm depending upon our God. Wormbrand did. He ended up in jail. Who knows in our generation if anyone will end up in jail or not? I don't know. But the words, and you can read this on your own, but the words I would love for you to read Isaiah 30, 15, later, and just focus on four words. Returning, rest, quietness, and confidence those who return to God, who come back to Him, who repent and come back to God they return they can rest in what He does and that rest gives them quietness a quiet confidence to go through life we don't have to justify everything we do to everybody else because that's not on the agenda we live our lives loving God and loving people and we actually act like we love God and love people if it's not right, I encourage you. It starts with confessing what's not right. Warmbread said something, and I'm not going to explain it. I'll let you wrestle with it. He said, nobody ever asked God, asked Jesus for forgiveness. And I went through and I checked, and he's right. Nobody ever asked Jesus for forgiveness. What they did is they confessed their sins to God. They repented. They said, I'm wrong here. I'm wrong here. And the forgiveness came automatically. We need to be able to come before God and say, God, I'm identifying this. If you have fruit in your life or you're restless, you're angry, you think another situation will make life better, whatever, stop, go sit before God and say, God, am I trusting or looking to something other than you? Am I satisfied with what you have given me? Do I trust that you are God my Father and love me? And again, if you're working through that and you want to work through it, there are elders here at church, there's Rick. Talk through it but be a people who demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. In a world that doesn't have it, it's the fruit of the Spirit that they will see. And that difference in your life will drive people to God, maybe not to you, but he can use it to drive them to himself. And that's where the true answer and the only answer lies. Hitler got out of prison, ruled a country, great disastrous life, his life ended in suicide. Wormbrand got out of prison, continued to be a pastor, founded the Voice of the Martyrs, died, and I am sure the angelic host carried him to his Savior. His feet are healed today, and they will be forever. Father, thank you that we could meet this morning, and I thank you for the promises you give us in your word. I ask that your Spirit speak to our hearts and convict us of things that we need to be convicted of, Thank you for being our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.